0: Well, this is our final Sunday of Advent. We're coming uh, to the end of our Advent series, though uh, next week I will be away and uh, our intern Jerome will be preaching uh, kind of a follow-up on the Advent, if that's a good way to put it, from Philippians chapter 2, uh, which also talks about the, 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 what the incarnation affects in our lives. And so uh, I encourage you to look forward to that and to prepare your heart for that. But today we're going to look at the last Sunday of Advent. Uh, and we're looking particularly at the topic of joy. We looked at joy in the prophetic, right? Joy is, as folks look forward as they dwelt in the land of darkness from Isaiah. We looked at joy in uh, Mary as she received word and, and Elizabeth as they received word of, of being the bearers of the, 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 the Messiah and of the forerunner. And how they found joy in being servants of the Lord. Last week, we looked at the joy of the shepherds as they were astounded by the glory of the Lord as it shone around them, but primarily as they saw the glory of the Lord in the birth of that child. And this week, we are looking at joy in the temple as those who waited and waited and waited saw the revelation of the Messiah in their day. And so with that, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 38. You can follow along in your bulletins, in your Bibles. Luke two twenty-one to 38. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And for a sign that, it is, that is opposed, and a word will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we ask that you would be with us as we listen to your word, that you would remind us of who you are, as the Savior of the world, and that we, too, would look and wait with expectation at your coming again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kids. How many days till Christmas? Right. Not that many. And if you were like me as a kid, I bet you can hardly wait. I personally had a hard time waiting for that day. For me, it all started the night before, the the, the sort of apex of that a- expectation. Uh, we had a busy evening uh, in my household growing up. We had to, uh, first of all, wrap all the presents because we always waited to the last second for these sorts of things. And then my mom was always busy uh, preparing for a meal that was going to come later. It was a a, a fancy hors d'oeuvre type meal that we would have, and she was getting that ready. In the meantime, she was getting us ready as kids as well to go to church, because we would go to an evening service. And my dad was getting ready, because he had to uh, prepare that service, that that message. And so, we're all getting ready in anticipation. And I don't know what it was like for my mom, but I know what it's like as a parent. Uh, The kids kind of go bonkers on Christmas Eve. And so, there's a lot of energy and, and a lot of excitement and, and I'm sure a lot of anticipation. And then, of course, we'd go to the service, which was full of singing and joy and expectation. And then we'd go home and we'd eat a little bit of uh, those cocktail shrimps. And we, had, we loved chicken spaghetti. It's a family tradition. We would have that. And then we'd have other nice hors d'oeuvres. Um, and it was wonderful. And then we would uh, sort of rush around doing last-minute things, and then we as kids were sent off to bed and we'd hear the rustling of other things going on downstairs, all and making it exciting. Now, kids, does that sound familiar or something like that? Maybe it wasn't exactly the same, but something to that effect. And then, of course, the day would finally come. Rush downstairs, and I would hope that nobody else was there yet. I always wanted to be one of the first. I'd probably bother all my my sisters and my parents because I was always one of the first, except for maybe my dad. Um, There's a lot of anticipation. So much. And all those rituals and traditions leading up to Christmas add to it, don't they? All the things that we do every year, it's like we look forward to lessons and carols. We look forward to all the little bits and parts that lead up to that moment that actually, when the day comes, kind of expresses itself in joy. Now imagine another thing for a moment. It's a different thing. Imagine you're invited to a party, any kind of party you want to imagine. Let's say it's a year in advance, and the party planners are getting early, and they send out a save-the-date notification. But afterward, you hear nothing. There is no preparation on your part. You don't see any reminders or any information about the party, what to expect, what to wear, what to bring, etc. Uh, and then the date of the party comes, right? Uh, it rolls around. And though you have some vague memories of a party at some point, you miss the date. Now, it turns out that information was going out. You just missed it. You missed the flyers, you missed the mailers, you threw it in with your junk mail, you didn't pay attention when your friends and folks around you talked about the upcoming party, you simply couldn't be bothered, you had more important things to think about, Uh, you, you just didn't care. And so it was sort of this vague thing that was out there, and so you missed it. And when it came and passed, and you heard about it, you were surprised, and not a little upset that you missed out. Why didn't I hear more about this, you say? And your friends say, we've been talking about it for a year. Where have you been? There was no anticipation. There was no preparation. There was no expectation. There was nothing driving you to that point. And there was, in a sense, no joy in it. Over the past month, I've been meditating on joy in the Christmas story. Sometimes joy comes unexpectedly. We saw this last week with the shepherds, right? Joy came Bright light, glory to God in the highest. There was no missing it. It was was there. It was palpable. But I think often, joy comes precisely because we are anticipating and expecting. And so it is for Simeon and for Anna in the temple. They weren't caught off guard, and they didn't miss out. Instead, they prepared themselves for that day When the consolation of Israel, the redemption of God's people, and the hope of the Gentiles, the light of the Gentiles would come, they looked forward to it with expectation. And so when the time comes, when they see it, they are overwhelmed with joy and thanksgiving, and they give praise to God. And so for us, as we think about Simeon and Anna and how they waited in expectation, I want us to consider doing the same, and we do this for Christmas, but I I want us to think about this in terms of the Christian life, generally speaking. What does it mean for us to live a life of expectation that leads to joy? Maybe to put it simply, this is the call. Let us rejoice because the Lord has come. Let us rejoice because the Lord has come and is coming again. We're going to look at this call to rejoice by examining how we prepare our hearts for joy. And I want to give you three foundational Christian virtues that I think get at this idea here in the text that help us sort of frame our life around this idea of preparation. Three foundational Christian virtues that will lead to joy in the coming of Jesus. The first is faith, the second is hope, and the third is love. Faith, hope, and love. We see them in the text. So first, we'll begin with faith. Think about faith. We see faith uh, in the three groups of people here in our text. First, in Joseph and Mary. Second, with Simeon, and finally with Anna. And I want to take each of them in turn and see how they exhibit faith in the account. First, Joseph and Mary. Now, there's a lot of little cues here at the beginning of the text that tell us something about what Mary and Joseph were doing in going to the temple and bringing Jesus. At the the beginning, it says that at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then it goes on and it says, and when the time came for purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Just want us to, to, to stop there for a minute. Um, we'll, we'll remember from a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Mary that when the angel visited Mary and told Mary that she was going to conceive and give birth to Jesus, what was her response? Well, her response was one of faith. She said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. We see this again when they come to go and first bring their baby to the priest to be circumcised and to go through that rite um, and be given the name that was told to them by the angel, that his name would be Jesus, which means Savior of the world. They did all of this according to the word. From the outset, Mary and Joseph exhibited unswerving willingness to follow what the lord told them to do so it should not be surprising for us to learn that uh here in this account they do exactly what the lord commanded they dedicated their firstborn to the lord according to the scripture if we go back to exodus chapter 13 as they're leaving you'll remember it was exodus all the firstborn of egypt died and the firstborn of Israel was saved by the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And so, as they're leaving, the Lord says to them, Listen, you are to dedicate your firstborn to the Lord. The way you do this, it? Uh, we see in Leviticus, uh, in chapter 12, they were to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the child. So what did... Mary and Joseph do in faith, they obeyed. In faith, they followed the Lord. But it's more than this. It's more than the fact that they just heard what the Lord said and said, I am your servant. I will do what your word commands us. Not only that, but they do something else. They go to the temple. This is not an insignificant thing. They go to the temple and they go to the house of the Lord, which is where they would. Worship. As we'll see, all of this, whether it's faith, whether it's hope, whether it's love, it leads to worship, which is really another way of talking about this idea of rejoicing in the Lord. They trust the Lord, they obey the Lord, they go to the Lord, and they worship. Mary and Joseph serve and obey, and they present this child to the Lord. And in doing so, they were worshiping. This is the nature of faith. But we see a second person here, Simeon. We're told in the text that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. Again, Simeon's faith is expressed in obedience. How is he described? I just mentioned he is a righteous man. What does that mean? He's righteous. Now, before we get off on some theological rabbit Trail. I just want to say, when the Scripture describes somebody as righteous, he, they're, they're not describing them as perfect or sinless. They're just saying that these people that are described as righteous are those who walk humbly before the Lord in obedience to his word. They're followers of God and of Christ. This is one who is upright according to God's law. It doesn't mean he was perfect. It doesn't mean he was sinless. It just means that this was his character. And with his obedience is something else. So it didn't just say that he was a righteous man, but he says that he was a devout man. Devotion. We're told in the Gospel of Luke that he was a devout man. And it's interesting to note that Luke is the only one that uses this language of devout, and he uses it here in the Gospel of Luke and then at this moment, and then he uses it occasionally uh, throughout the book of Acts to describe those persons who were deeply committed. Occasionally, he'll use it negatively, kind of like this person was a devout Jew and therefore uh, was against Christians. But oftentimes, more often than not, it's used to describe those who were deeply committed to Christ. Just two examples in the book of Acts that I wanted to describe. Uh, The first one was, uh, or people, people, The first people that uh, are described as devout that I want to note here is in the book of Acts after Stephen. You'll remember Stephen preached, right? And Stephen was uh, eventually taken up by the authorities, overseen by Paul, and and stoned to death. And there were witnesses who watched this. And Stephen was stoned, and after he was stoned and, and killed, It says that there were devout men who took his body and buried it, possibly putting their own lives at risk. They said, I'm going to take this body and I'm going to identify myself with Stephen. You know, their hope, this was the hope of the religious authorities, was to say, Stephen is an example. If you want to follow Jesus, expect this. And what they did is they said, we follow Jesus, and even if we expect that, we're still going to follow Jesus. That's devotion." They picked up the body of Stephen and they buried it. They were devout men who buried Stephen's body. The second is a more interesting one. It's Cornelius. He was a centurion. Not the most likely character in, in Scripture to be a devout person. Or if they were devout, more likely to anybody, it was going to be to, to Caesar, to, to Rome. He was part of an elite guard. And yet it says that he was a devout Man towards God, a God-fearer who is described as giving alms to the poor, who prayed continually. So the Lord met him, devoted. For Simeon, his devotion is on display in his going to the temple. He went as one who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What did his devotion do? It drove him to that place where God meets with his people and he said, Lord, I'm waiting for you because you have promised to meet me here promise to come, devotion. He's one who trusted in the promises of God. And so, too, our final example of faith, Anna, the prophetess. She was a widow. She was 84 years old. You'll put a little note there that says it could have been 84 plus her period of virginity or her time up to the point where she got married. So let's roughly say 15 years So, 84 plus 15, 84 plus 14, she was maybe 108 or 109. We don't know, but 84, 109, either way, she was older. Yet, despite her advanced years, what do we note about her? What do we note about her? That she spent day and night in the temple. What did she do? She prayed. She fasted. She proclaimed the promises. She was a prophetess. So how does faith relate to rejoicing? So we've talked a little bit about the faith of these people, but how does it relate to rejoicing in the coming of the Lord? Faith, as the writer of Hebrews points out, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. Faith, looks beyond our circumstances. It looks beyond the circumstance of the situation and not only looks forward to a future point, but primarily what faith does is it looks to God. And it says, here is where I'm casting all my chips, everything I have, I'm all in, this is it. I trust in the Lord. And I have confidence that what he says he will do will come to pass. It is that absolute conviction and assurance that what God says he will do, he will do. And of course, this kind of trust, this kind of faith leads us to obedience and to reflection on who God is. And where does that lead? So what happens when faith becomes sight? It's like all that you know to be true, and this, we've experienced this, if you've been a believer, you know you put your trust in the Lord and he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and you know he's forgive you, forgiving you your sins. What do you do? Oh, that's great, Lord. Great, thanks. No, you rejoice because the promises that he has told to us in his word are true. It causes joy. And gladness that what was so long hoped for has come to pass. And so it was for Mary and Joseph. As they brought in obedience Jesus to the temple. Here's the Messiah, the king, coming to his dwelling place. So it is for Simeon, who sees the baby and takes him up into his arms and says, Here he is, the consolation of Israel. So it is for Anna, as she is praying, as she is fasting, as she is proclaiming, and she sees the the redemption of God's people, she goes and tells the good news to all. She is overwhelmed with joy. So what does it mean for us? What does it look like for us to exercise faith in Christ I I want to encourage you, if you are here this morning and you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you to go and read the promises of God. You heard earlier the great promise that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I want to encourage you to go and, and read through the promises found in Scripture And then examine your own heart and and what would it look like for you to put your trust in that hope and then to, to find out this is real, this is true, this is right, this is good. I guarantee you, you will have joy, inexpressible, as Paul says, and full of glory. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. And believer, if you're like me, And you feel like, on a daily level, you fight for joy. There are times where joy seems elusive. I want to encourage you. Look to the God who is true, who is faithful, who is good, and who promises in his word that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And that he has promised to you in his word a salvation that is kept in heaven. Meaning it is protected and preserved for all eternity. And that he will reveal it. And I want to encourage you in faith to start walking as though that thing that is yet to be revealed ultimately will come to pass. And as you do, to walk with expectation and hope. Which brings me to my second point. Hope. It's kind of close to faith. Sometimes it feels like they're almost interchangeable, but they're a little different, and I want to describe that difference here for a minute. Um, hope is different. If faith is that fundamental trust in God, exercised in utter dependence on God, in obedience to God, and ultimately leads to worship and joy in God, what then is hope? Well, hope is that looking forward in anticipation and confidence that what God has promised will come to pass. So it is that act of looking forward to things yet to, to be accomplished. Faith kind of a, a, sort of overwhelms all of it and it looks to God as, as the one who is, who is in charge and says, I'm going to put my trust in him. Hope is looking to those promises that he has said will come to pass and know that they will in fact Come to pass. We see this particularly in Simeon and Anna, though it ought not to be missed in Mary and Joseph as well. If we go back uh, to the last chapter, remember Mary in her great song, the Magnificat. Um, w- w- we read these words. Mary sang a song of hope where she said, in the middle of it, she said, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And goes on. But it's interesting, Mary, in that, in that passage, speaks as if things that were to come have already been accomplished. I think I've told you this in the past. This idea of, of using uh, the, the, the completed sense of the verb, right? This thing has happened to talk about things in the future. The prophets did this a lot. We looked at it in the prophet Isaiah. Well, Mary's doing this too. She's saying this thing that is just barely you know, coming to pass, has not even been born yet, has been accomplished. The Lord has indeed come. He has indeed shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and he has redeemed his people. It is sure. And this was when Jesus was still in the womb. Mary and Joseph had hope. But here in our text, Simeon is the first one we see with great hope. We're told that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Not only that, in in God's mercy, the Lord revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ, meaning the Lord's Messiah, the King, the consolation of Israel. So here is Simeon. He's an old man ready to go home to be with the Lord. And yet he longs to see the day when the consolation of Israel come. In fact, he is so committed to that day that the Lord is gracious to him and merciful and says, you know what? You who have great hope, Simeon, he's coming and I'm going to show him to you. So there he is at the house of God said, well, where else in all of Israel would the Messiah show up? He's going to show up at the temple. So I'm going to be at the temple. That's hope and expectation. He was full of expectation. Kids, this would be a terrible thing. But what if, and, 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 and let me rephrase this. There are, a, I'm going to make my caveat here. Um, I realize That There are times, for some, where you can't give gifts the way you would like in a family. And you say to your kids, listen, we can't do gifts the way we did them in the years past. So that's the caveat. I recognize that. But let's just say, all things being equal, parents just decide on a whim, they say to their kids, for no good reason. "Um, Yeah, we might get you gifts. We may not. That is, uh, would that be distressing as a child? I think I would have been distressed. I'd be like, what does that mean? My dad used to joke, uh, you know, and maybe you dads all do this. This might just be a dad thing, but, um, you know, I'd always be told, oh, you're going to get coal in your stocking this year. And I knew it wasn't true. I knew it wasn't true. I knew that my parents loved me, that my father and my mother cared about me, that they wanted to give gifts to me, not because of anything I'd done, but just because they were my parents, and I had confidence that there would be at least a present under the tree, right? Maybe, usually, no, I'm just kidding. That's hope, right? That's, that's that, that certainty means hope was expressed. He was like the child sitting there. Dad, I know you have a present for me. When's it coming? I, I, am, I know it's here. Just, I just got to wait for it. That's hope. And where does this lead when finally that little baby comes to the temple? And, and we, aren't, we aren't told exactly how he knew this was the Messiah. Uh, except that in this text we note over and over again that he was filled with the Spirit. Maybe the Lord just spoke to him and said, that's him. I told you he would come. Here he is. What does he do? Here's this stranger. Comes up to Mary and Joseph and says, can I have the baby now, please? <laughs> Grabs it into his arms. Holds it. Mary and Joseph are just astounded. They don't know what to make of this. Here was this man who was prophesying, who was full of the Spirit, who who was quoting from and alluding to all this wondrous stuff in the in the book of from the book of Isaiah. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon had hope and it was expressed when revealed in joy and thanksgiving. Finally, the third, Anna. It was a woman of hope. One who prophesied, one who spoke of the promises of God yet to be revealed. That's what prophets do, Right? They speak of the things of the Lord yet to be revealed. She was one of hope looking forward. And when the baby came in and she saw that moment when the redemption of Jerusalem was revealed, what does she do? She responds with joy and thanksgiving by going and speaking to all who are waiting. I can just picture it. Here he is, the Savior of the world. He has come. Do you not know the good news, the glad tidings that have come to us today in the city of David, just like the angels? So what does it mean for us to have hope? What does it mean for us to have hope that leads to joy? I think it means being filled with the knowledge of the promises of God. It means for us to know what he promises and to expect and look forward to those promises, to those promises that are already fulfilled, to rejoice in those, but to look forward to those ones yet to come. So when we as Christians gather together, we talk to one another as those who are expectant who look forward to the moment when Christ himself will be revealed again and we will see him and be like him and we will be saved and we ought to be telling that one to another. If we're struggling with joy, as I know many are and I know that I have, what, what, what really debilitates us is when we, our eyes are fixed on the circumstances and the hardship and all the sorrow and grief that attend to this world and the things that seem hopeless and we fail to look up and say, No, that's the promise. Where is your hope? Well, there's one last aspect of the text I want us to note that leads to joy. And that is love. Love. When the Apostle Paul said that these three remain... Even that great passage in Corinthians 13 that says, you know, what is love? What does it look like? Well, that picture that he paints that we read at often at uh, uh, weddings is a picture of Jesus. But he says at the end, the very last sentence, he says, there is one last thing. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. And he says that the greatest of these is love. I just want to very quickly look at love here in our text, the love of Mary and Joseph. I, I, I think the way that Mary and Joseph serve the Lord and are—they're like the uh, how do you say the, the the parents? How else to put it? The parents of the Lord Jesus. In that aspect of love, they parented the Lord Jesus as servants of the Lord showing love not just to the Lord by obedience to him but love to others by by you know what parents do is we prepare our children to grow up and mature and to be people of God and we do that in love not just because we love them but because we love the world and we want our children to be lights and 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 men of men and women of God in the world. So we love the world in the way that we parent. And so it is with Mary and Joseph. They they follow the Lord, they serve the Lord, they, they bring Jesus to the Lord. They love the Lord. They love Jesus and they love the world. And we see the love of Simeon in a similar way. He takes up that baby, holds him in his arms, declares the wonders of the Lord. But even in that, he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for Israel. He is hopeful and joyful because he loves people. He longs to see the wrongs in the world righted and salvation come. He loves God He's faithful to him. He loves this little baby who is the consolation of Israel, and he loves the world. And we see this in Anna too. There she is faithfully devoted to the Lord, praying and fasting and waiting upon him, even into her late years. Maybe she was in her hundreds, I don't know. She loved the Lord. And when she saw this baby, she saw him as the redemption of Jerusalem, and she was filled with such joy and thanksgiving that she wanted to share this with all the world. And so she proclaims to anyone that would listen here is the salvation of Jerusalem. That's love. But fundamentally, when the Apostle Paul says that the greatest of these is love faith, hope, and love, it's It's not the love of Mary and Joseph, and it's not the love of Simeon, and it's not the love of Anna. As wonderful examples as these folks are to us, the reason the Apostle Paul says the greatest of these is love is because he's just described the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ, revealed to mankind. This is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved. Loved us. And this is where our joy comes from. When we think about joy, it's this hope. That we have a God, despite our rebellion and sin, despite the fact that we rejected him, loved us with a love that cost him everything. Endured shame and humiliation and crucifixion and the wrath and curse of his heavenly father that we might have eternal life. Friends, this is love. As we think about joy in the Christmas story, it is simple. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have Eternal life. Let's pray.